Hello and welcome to The Eco Chamber, a podcast on the forefront of environmental policy brought to you by the investigative team of journalists at ENDS Report. I'm James Adjibong Parsons. In this week's episode, we're covering the OEP's warning that environmental assessments aren't up to snuff. Welsh water's not-so-new, but terrible, track record on pollution spills. And the government's latest plans on waste. Rubbish or treasure? We'll find out. And finally, for this week's deep dive, we'll hear from nutrient neutrality expert Dr Gabriel Connor-Strike about all things nitrates and phosphates. So let's get to it, folks, as we explore this week's... Eco So the Office for Environmental Protection, the government's post-Brexit green watchdog, has raised big concerns over the way environmental impact assessments are being implemented in England. If a development will likely have a significant environmental effect, you need to carry out an EIA. But there is something going wrong, says the OEP. To help explain the issues, I'm joined by ENDS Reports' Pippa Neal and Shosha Aidy. Pippa, can you take me through the OEP's concerns over EIA? Lots of acronyms there, James. But um, basically, the OEP is concerned about two things. Firstly, the implementation of the EIAs, but also about the government's response to the process. So the OEP says that the EIA process and generally the much wider strategic environmental assessments are not working as they should be because of deep-seated issues which they say are baked into the assessment system. And these problems include access to information, the extent of post-decision monitoring, evaluation and reporting, and also access to expertise. The OEP has said that if we don't address these issues, then any reforms to the environmental assessment legislation, which the government is currently proposing to do, are unlikely to deliver on the government's ambitions. Okay, so Shosha, can you just take us through some of those legislative changes that the government want to bring in? Yes, so instead of having this environmental impact assessment or strategic environmental assessments... Which is that overarching, bigger, plan-making impact assessment. Exactly. There would be an environmental outcomes report approach... Um, this approach is more aligned with the environmental improvement plan um, and will be more focused on outcomes, so whether the plan, programme or project contributes to meeting these environmental targets that have been set out, and that includes targets on biodiversity, tree planting, water quality, air quality and also resource management. And this, for those back in 2018, this is kind of the, the jump forwards from the 25-year environment plan. The EIP. And I think one last acronym for everyone, you said it, the Environmental Outcomes Report, or EORS. Now, I quite like EORS over all the others we've discussed so far, so I'm going to stick EORS, pin that on my metaphysical desk right now. But before I get too carried away with EORS, Pippa, can you take us through some of the major concerns that the OEP has right now? 
So on the point of access to information, the OEP has said that basically good quality environmental data for environmental assessments is not always available and that this, they say, has resulted in a weak evidence base for decision making. Um, and according to their kind of stakeholder engagement, this has reportedly resulted in significant environmental effects, which should have been considered at the strategic level being stepped down to the project level. Um and they also say that kind of without having this standard quality of data, it means that there's, you know, it's wasting resources, causing delays with schemes having to spend months or years gathering data that others have already collected. So there's just like an overlap of, of work and it's just taking too long, basically. Secondly, the OEP also highlights that an important aspect of both EIAs and strategic environmental assessments is the avoidance and mitigation of environmental impacts. Um, These are also with habitats regulations assessments, which require decision makers to ascertain that any plan or project will not have an adverse effect on the integrity of the protected sites. But according to the report, the regulator found that post-decision monitoring, evaluation and reporting was lacking in all three of the assessment regimes. Um, And this, they say, exists because there's just a shortage of skills and expertise. Um, The cost is too high and as a result, there's a lack of enforcement. Um, And this is like the OEP says this is directly resulting in environmental harm not being offset as predicted and monitoring results are not being used to improve future assessments. So lots of stuff being done pre-development, nothing or worrying at little amounts being done post-development. Yeah, exactly. And then the third and final issue that the OEP identified is the problem of access to the necessary expertise. So kind of does link with the point I just made made a second ago. Um, But the report basically highlights that planning authorities' resources have been slashed in recent years. I think they they state that um, they've decreased by 55% between 2010 and 2011 and 2019-2020, with, you know, we all know that local authorities kind of are struggling across the board. Um, But the OEP says that specifically with planning authorities, this lack of expertise is undermining the implementation of all three of the environmental assessment regimes. Lots of different issues and a lot of it does come down to kind of this funding and expertise and lack of skills across the sector. Okay, so the OEP has identified a lot of problems there. Did it give the government any potential solutions? So there was a few kind of key things that they recommended. And one, on the point of access to information, they suggested which seems quite obvious, really, is that the government should publish environmental data standards and a map-based portal that could, like, signpost to existing databases. So basically avoiding that duplication that I talked about before. Um, On monitoring and evaluation, the OEP recommended that the government take action to make post-decision monitoring evaluations nationally accessible and ensure that this monitoring and reporting is overseen by a person with the necessary expertise and also independence, which is quite key there. Um, And then finally, on the issue of expertise, the the regulator recommended that as a priority, the government should work with local planning authorities and other public bodies to implement a strategy for resources in order to secure the expertise required. Okay, and in response to the OEP's report, a government spokesperson has said that Quote, we will consider this report and respond to it in due course. We will continue to consider ways to support the delivery of our legally binding environmental targets. From England to Wales and its Welsh water, which is in hot water after admitting to illegal sewage spills in protected waterways. 
Shosha, what's the story? So after some excellent sleuthing by Professor Peter Hammond, who's from the campaign group Windrush Against Sewage Pollution... Who you've interviewed recently. Oh, yeah, we actually spoke to him on the podcast. Um, So if you want to head back, I think it was in the 40s, the late 40s. Um, But yes, Welsh Water has admitted that between 40 and 50 of its wastewater treatment sites may be in breach of their environmental permits. So Hammond actually looked at 11 of the um, wastewater treatment works in total and found that um, the rivers and catchments in the areas were being exposed to untreated sewage for around 100,000 hours between 2018 and 2023 and at least 419 million litres of untreated sewage was discharged from just four of those um, wastewater treatment sites. So the sites impacted um, included two special areas of conservation. Um, One was the Cardigan Bay, which is home to one of Europe's largest populations of bottlenose dolphins and one of only two places where they are in the UK. And um, the other sites impacted included sites of special scientific interest. So, yeah, a lot of hard work from Peter Hammond and um, some really shocking results. And it's interesting you bring up Cardigan Bay because I also know that the Tavy, another SAC, has been impacted by the same wastewater treatment works, the Cardigan wastewater treatment works. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Um, Yeah, so I think it was, according to the permit, Cardigan wastewater treatment works must treat about 88 litres of sewage a second before spilling. But it was found to have breached that limit for a time equivalent of 1,146 days um, from the start of 2018 to May 2023, which is that time period that Hammond looked at. So the TV estuary in particular, um, which is one of those special areas of conservation, is home to a number of European protected species, including Atlantic salmon and otters. Um, And yes, this then flows into that bay, which has the dolphins. So it's particularly shocking. What's happened to Welsh water? So in response to the latest um, revelations, Welsh Water said it's already sort of identified this issue and reported it to NRW. Um, It also agreed to invest some money to improve the site, uh, £20 million to be exact. Um, And they say that the reason this issue has been exacerbated is because salt water was entering the works. So actually due to those issues um, and others, Welsh Water was actually ranked two stars in the latest... um, environmental performance report by Natural Resources Wales going down from three stars. Um, Eco-Chamber listeners might remember we actually spoke to Professor Steve Ormoran on this, who's um, Deputy Chair on the board of NRW, um, who explained the impact of that downgrading. That's episode 61, if anyone's interested. And in response to all this, uh, a Welsh Water spokesperson has said that we have extensive monitoring arrangements amongst the most extensive in the sector, which we use to monitor our sites. Monitor, monitor, monitor. Each site presents its own and sometimes very complex challenges, with NRW, Natural Resources Wales, reviewing the information we provide, agreeing appropriate timescales for resolving the issues and taking enforcement action where appropriate. Now, they do have 5,000 environmental permits to look after, And they said that we are continually monitoring and when we find these issues, we share the data with regulators, investigate and deliver improvements. What has the regulator Natural Resources Wales said on all this, Pippa? 
Uh, so Anne Reedy, who's the operations manager at NRW, um, she said that the regulator was aware of significant compliance issues at the Cardigan Wastewater Treatment Works um, and has used its regulatory powers to enforce the improvements required over the years. Um, and this, this, it says, includes a programme to deliver improvements by 2030. Uh, she also said that there is an ongoing investigation into the severity and frequencies of the permit breaches at this specific site. That's the Cardigan Bay yeah, wastewater treatment. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that those breaches will be dealt with in line with the regulator's enforcement and sanctions policy. Um, and just kind of an interesting update is that Fish Legal has recently sent a letter to the Chief Executive of Natural Resources Wales calling for a review to address this low compliance with the storm overflows discharges. Last year, the NGO uncovered emails through freedom of information requests, which actually showed that NRW had considered serving a statutory notice to Welsh Water over the sewage spills, but reportedly said that angling clubs on the river would just have to live with the fact that planned improvements were unlikely to be completed until 2030. From waste in water to the waste in our land, we are on to the final news story of the week. And it's the story that the four nations want mandatory digital waste tracking in place by 2025 as part of a consultation response published over the weekend. Pippa, what's all this rubbish about? So even though waste is normally a devolved issue, this is a plan to have across the whole of the UK this kind of tracking system where you can track the movement of waste, something which currently is basically done on pen and paper. And, you know, it's anyone, any journalist that's ever tried to kind of look into waste numbers and figures knows just how confusing this data is and it basically just doesn't really exist. So this is a plan that's been talked about for a really long time um, and the government is finally pushing ahead Um, and a big part of the intentions of doing this is firstly to kind of understand where the waste is going and you know the the figures involved but it's also to help tackle waste crime which I'm sure listeners of the eco chamber already know but it's a huge problem Um, I was just looking at some numbers and I think in England waste crime is estimated to cost the economy one billion pounds per year with the waste industry estimating that 18% of all waste is illegally managed. So it's a huge issue and, yeah, this is kind of one of the steps the government is proposing to start to deal with this. Can you take us through a little bit about this new system? So the system will require information to be digitally recorded about the movements of all types of controlled and extractive waste across the UK. So this includes household waste, commercial and industrial waste, um, and that's both hazardous and non-hazardous waste. Okay. And the key bit here for me is that it's the household waste collected from third parties, which is also going to need this digital tracking. Yeah, that's right. To stop, you know, any... I guess, um, nefarious fly tippers. Mm -hmm. But there are going to be some exemptions, though, aren't there? Yeah, there are a few. So, for example, waste from mines or quarries won't be required to report their waste unless the waste is being removed off the site. Um, Household waste collected from domestic premises by local authorities um, won't be required, Um, only like the third parties, as you said. Um, And the government is also discussing further exemptions for retailers with take-back schemes, charity donations and multiple producer premises such as shopping centres or healthcare facilities where waste is managed collectively. 
um, and movements of non-hazardous waste between sites operated by the same person or organisations that don't need a permit or licence also could be exempt. Okay. If listeners didn't get the pun the first time, Shosha, is this a rubbish plan? It's not quite a silver bullet. So Graham Kennett, who is Principal Environmental Consultant at Mabbit and Associates Limited, told us that it's not going to fix the human error aspect or fly tipping. He thinks it will probably see 75% of the waste sector using the service, um, but he doesn't think it will stop waste being miscoded and going to places it shouldn't. He said, and I quote, I don't think it will be the silver bullet that stops waste being fly tipped or abandoned. We need other mechanisms in place. The Chartered Institute for Waste Management welcomed the plans um, and said that having a UK-wide approach to tracking waste makes sense um, and builds on the innovation and investment in technology the sector has already made. So there's two perspectives there. So with what we know about the government's intentions, when will we see this plan in place? The plan is to make the digital waste tracking service publicly available to users on a voluntary basis by 2024 so far. Um, and the legislation is then set to be mandatory from April 2025, subject to approval across the devolved nations um, and, of course, parliamentary approval. Before we leave this trash talk behind us, we need to talk about Rishi Sunak's seven bins, which is this recycling policy uh, our listeners may remember, because it's sort of back in the news. And Pippa, I was wondering if you could just sort of take us back there and why, why are we bringing this up now? So in September, listeners of Eco Chamber will remember that Prime Minister Rishi Sunak delivered a speech outlining a shift in government policy for net zero. Um, and included in, in this kind of range of drawbacks was plans to scrap proposals to have households have seven different bins, which was an interesting one because this never existed in the first place. Um, but what he was referring to when, when he said he was scrapping this was the plans for consistent collection. So that's basically requiring that all households and all local authorities have the same waste collected. So the intention is basically just to have a more streamlined process across households and local authorities in order to improve recycling across England. So as part of the plans to scrap consistent collections, uh, the government has now replaced this with a new somewhat the same scheme which is called simpler recyclings um so yeah the government said no more seven bins but we're still implementing the policy that they alleged would create seven bins it's a bit confusing okay so they want is it sort of half as many bins as seven sort of thing that looks like three and a half bins but something like that yeah so so in essence we're talking about having three waste containers for black bins dry recycling and food waste and an optional garden waste will be offered by local authorities for those that want it. Three and a half bins, okay. What are the timescales here? So we could see these requirements um, by March 2026, that's kind of what the government's talking about, but it will be somewhat staged approach. So for example, plastic film won't be required to be recycled until March 2027. Um, But yeah, that's sort of what we're looking at at the moment. Okay, and on plastics then, because some of our listeners might query the recyclability of plastics, what are we talking about here? So dry recyclable waste streams must be collected by March, the end of March 2026. And the government intends to include like film packaging and plastic bags into this waste stream by the end of March 2027. 
But there has been some reservations about this, like because some... So Lee Marshall, who's the Policy and External Affairs Director at the Chartered Institute of Waste Management, has just kind of warned that the infrastructure might not be there. Um, he said... He said, especially for film packaging, this will remain challenging given the delays we've had and there'll be concern about procurement bottlenecks that these relatively short deadlines may cause. It's time now for our moment of the week. A chance to reflect on something fun, weird, wacky, cool, inventive. Um, and just a chance to sort of have a bit of a laugh, if we can, uh, from, from what can be sometimes quite hard going environmental news. Shosha, do you have a moment of the week? I do, and it's almost thematic, I would say. So the Guinness World Record for the largest cucurbita mosaic has been broken by Sunnyfields Farm in Southampton. Um, so cucurbita, which I hope I'm saying right, uh, is basically about pumpkins and squashes. And what they've done is on their farm, they've made this mosaic from Tim Burton's film, The Nightmare Before Christmas, that's 200 square metres in size and was made up of more than 10,000 pumpkins and squashes. Wow. Yeah, so they smashed the record. Oh, definitely look it up. It is great. Um, and what I love as well is the farmer who's um, Ian Nelson, he said, we weren't intentionally doing it to get the record, as each year we do a big display, but we realised it would qualify and just went for it. So that's great. (laughs) I don't think I've heard of an unintentional um, world record beater, but there we go, there's one. Pippa, do you have a moment of the week? My moment has to be a press release issued by the Environment Agency yesterday with the short title Yavadabadoo after Environment Agency investigators unearthed a 125-million-year-old fossil um, in the Isle of Wight um, while they were kind of implementing plans for sea defences. And there was one sentence of that press release that sparked particular joy in the um, ENS Report newsroom, where it says, It's a layer of history we have only seen brought to life in the Flintstones or movies like Jurassic Park. Oh, you take the joys (laughs) in, the the simple joys. The little things. Um, from little to massive, my moment of the week, um, it, it, I'm going to have to sort of cast our net back here to moment of the month. Um, but the US has issued the first ever fine for space junk. Oh. So I'm sticking with the theme of waste. I know I'm technically not on this planet anymore with this story. But the Federal Communications Commission has issued a fine for $150,000 for to a company for failing to move one of their old satellites launched in 2002 far enough away from others in orbit. So it's not a lot of money because the company who got fined, they admitted liability, they had an annual turnover last year of $16.7 billion. So (laughs) it's not a lot of cash really. But what's interesting is it sort of represents a precedent. So as we're getting more and more space junk and debris from parts from satellites or old shuttles that are just floating around in our orbit, there's going to be liability there, potentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And not, not, like, I didn't think it was that much because they were expected to move their satellite, the EcoStar 7, 186 miles further from Earth. But at the end of its life, in 2022... It had only moved 76 miles. So they needed about another, what's that, 90 miles? And they would have been okay. And we're talking about, you know, it's up 22,000 miles up in space. So yeah. it's, it's There's a lot of space up in space, space out here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've got to move your satellite, mate. Mm. 
Time now for our deep dive with ENDS Features Editor, Tess Colley. I'm joined by Gabriel Connor-Strike, the Chief Executive of Greenshank Environmental, a company he co-founded just over a year ago, which works with developers to help them mitigate the nutrient pollution from new home developments. Nutrient pollution is a form of water pollution, where excessive amounts of nitrates and phosphate get into the water, where they can prompt huge amounts of algae to grow, covering the surface in a green goop and sucking up the oxygen out of the water, killing off the life in it. There are two main sources of nutrient pollution, agriculture and the water industry, but new homes and the wastewater associated with them are also part of the problem. And it's become a political hot potato in recent months, with government having attempted to scrap nutrient neutrality rules, which require developers to prove new homes they build will not add to the nutrient levels and protected waterways already suffering from the issue. Gabriel, welcome to the Eco Chamber. Thank you for coming in. Thanks, Tess. <laughs> so before we get into it, what's been going on in Westminster and the upheaval there, could you just tell me what exactly Greenshank does to help developers to, to move their house building projects along? Yeah, so Greenshank um, is working to bring forward nutrient mitigation projects. Um, so we work a little bit directly with developers, but now our real focus is working uh, with landowners to help realise uh, nutrient mitigation projects on their land. Um, and in delivering those nutrient mitigation projects, we are effectively creating uh, nutrient mitigation credits. And then those credits can be bought by developers and in the process of buying those um, credits, the developers can effectively discharge their requirements to offset the additional nutrients that are going to be created by their new housing developments. Mm. And what what exactly, when we talk about nutrient mitigation, like what exactly is it? Because um, how, how do you get them out of the water, basically? Or how yeah. do you stop them getting in? So there's, I guess, a couple of, like, major ways and you've got kind of some technological solutions um, and those really in this context are upgrading sort of old on-site sewage treatment systems so if you go out into sort of more rural areas um, you have lots of houses that have what are generally called septic tanks um, so there's on-site sewage treatment systems a lot of them are quite old and a bit knackered they don't tend to be maintained very well um, and they are known to be hotspots of nutrient pollution uh, in the environment and so some people are going around and basically just approaching people and saying would you like to upgrade your septic tank to what's called a package treatment plant which is just like a more effective uh, sort of septic tank that can have actual nutrient removal technologies in them um, and then that's a way of basically reducing the nutrient output from these sort of rural properties that aren't on the main sewer network. Um, that's one thing people are doing, that's kind of the main technological solution, but the, the kind of bigger avenue for doing this and the way to do it kind of more at scale is using nature-based solutions. Um, and there's is that a, like taking farmland out of production or is it, is it that's what you hear about most? Is yeah. Is there other things to it? So there's so taking farmland out of production is one of the ways people are doing it and it's the way that, that so most mitigation projects have been done so far um, but the other big way is wetlands and probably um, people might have heard quite a bit about constructed wetland projects that are happening to generate nutrient mitigation um, and then there's some other approaches like planting trees next to rivers in what are called riparian buffers uh, and we're kind of promoting some slightly more novel approaches involving managing um, drainage ditches and, and basically putting um, effectively beaver dam type structures into rivers that create also kind of wetland type features but really 
the key to pretty much all of these nature-based solutions, um, with the exception of the sort of agricultural land use change um, approach, which is stopping an input of, of fertilizers. All of these other, um, which is obviously a source of nutrients, um, all of these other um, sort of approaches really work on the premise of just slowing down water that contains nutrients, and in the kind of process of slowing down that water you allow a bunch of natural processes to occur that take those nutrients sort of out of the water and that could be water from a you know wastewater treatment works which is highly enriched in in nutrients or from a kind of discharge from a like slurry pit or something like that on a farm or it could just be what we call diffuse pollution so just all of the nutrients that are moving around particularly in agricultural environments as a consequence of all of the fertilizers that that farmers have to put on land in order to grow crops. Mm. So it's not, I guess it, it's it's not the case that because we're getting about to we're going to move on to talk about the nutrient neutrality political crisis, mm. but um, it's not just it's not it's not the case that it, new homes only new homes create uh, nutrient pollution. It comes from a, a variety of sources, but I guess what you're saying is the solution is varied. So yeah, as you mentioned at the start of the interview. Um, the two main sources are agriculture and uh, wastewater, um, so treated wastewater. Uh, and in most catchments, that split is probably like slightly tilted towards agriculture. It kind of varies around catchments, but generally speaking, at a catchment-wide level, like it's going to be a bit more coming from agriculture than there is from sewage, and sometimes it's quite a bit more. So really, if we're looking to sort of put mitigation solutions where the nutrients are, we want to be looking um, at those you know, agricultural sources as a key um source of nutrients that are there to be sort of treated, removed and, and stopped from entering the protected systems that we're looking uh, to help by virtue of bringing forward these these mitigation solutions. Mm. And what made you set up Greenshank? Because, you know, you it's it's quite a new thing the, to be a provider of nutrient credits or nutrient kind of mitigation. What what made you think, yeah, we're going to I'm going to do it? So I was previously working as an environmental consultant and over the past sort of um, four years, the work that, well, it's about three years um, up until when I, when I left my previous role. Um, the, all the work I was doing pretty much by the end of it was on nutrient uh, neutrality. And it became really apparent that there was a gap in the market, I think, for companies that would basically sort of hold the hand of people to bring forward these nutrient mitigation schemes. Um, and I've always been quite interested in the natural capital space um, and sort of how that nature markets uh, area was going to develop and so it sort of seemed like a natural fit that I had done a lot of work as a consultant on um, nutrient neutrality from a kind of almost more theoretical perspective like writing strategy reports and stuff like that um, and, and developing different sort of tools that people are now using for as part of the response to nutrient neutrality um, and so it, I then thought we'd actually be quite fun to go and start figuring out how we can take all this kind of knowledge I've developed on the more thought theoretical side and, and put it into practice and actually bring forward these schemes. Hmm. Okay, so and how has it been going well? Because obviously we've had a lot of upheaval recently with the government trying to to scrap these nutrient neutrality rules which underpin the reason why any developer would need to, to find a mitigation solution. Um, so just to recap... For anyone who's not been not been listening to the Eco Chamber <laughs> podcast recently, um, what we've seen is the government try to carve out parts of the habitats regulations, which uh, yeah, they underpin these really strong kind of protections for nature across the country. Um, 
the government was defeated on its attempt to, to do that at first. And outrage followed from many quarters, including green groups, political opposition, uh, Greenshank and other kind of companies in the nutrient mitigation uh, sector. Um, and the latest in this, I think it's fair to call it a saga at this point, uh, is that the rumoured second attempt to scrap nutrient neutrality through another bill is now rumoured itself uh, to have been abandoned. What What's it been like in your first year as a company? <laughs> um, turbulent, I think, probably to sum up in a word. Um, yeah, it's been, you know, ups and downs. Obviously, we had a really strong start. We, we signed up, you know, some um, good project pipeline quite early on, which was great as a new business. Um, and we were kind of cracking on with with basically bringing forward our kind of approach to this, which was also quite a novel approach. And it was all, you know, very exciting. Um, and then obviously the government started briefing these plans to scrap nutrient neutrality over the summer. Um, and yeah, we had a significant change of focus into kind of um, working on, on, on lobbying to um, try and make sure that they didn't do that. Um, but as well as just the time sort of spent doing that rather than, you know, doing the work of delivering the projects, um, we are working in a, you know, nascent market and, um, what all markets need in order to really function properly, um, as a a really basic level is, is certainty. Um, so obviously the really key problem that, that we've had is that, now, so some you know directly some of the projects that we were working on um, have faltered because they were requiring investment, and some of them were requiring significant investment. Um, and we're not seeing you know kind of institutional investors wanting to step forward and and stamp up large sums of money um, on these mitigation schemes when we don't know whether or not the kind of market that would warrant that investment is actually still going to be there in you know six twelve months time. Um, and so we've been in a position now, you know, I think hopefully as you, you know, nicely summarized there, we've gone through this kind of initial existential threat from government, the, the leveling up bill amendment was defeated in the Lords. And so that kind of gave us some confidence. And then the King's speech bill kind of raised its head, which we all knew was potentially going to happen, um, and now we're hearing that that's not necessarily going to happen, but we don't know yet. And obviously waiting on tenterhooks for November 7th um, when we will find out for sure. Um, but equally, I think, you know, it's going to take some time for the level of uncertainty that's been put into this market to to kind of abate. And we are probably still going to see some difficulties in terms of getting people to, you know, sign off putting their land into a scheme which is an investment in its own right um, and for you know investments either from landowners for the costs of bringing these schemes forward or investments from third parties into these schemes in order to bring them forward um, to kind of start being made readily available again and that's you know very much sentiment we've heard from across the sector um, you know people are the, those of us that are working or bringing these schemes forward are kind of champing at the bit but we're very aware that we have to have people's company you know, have to have confidence of the people that um you know are, are putting their money into these um these schemes we're putting our time into it which is a form of investment as well but um but yeah really it's about when it comes to putting cold hard cash forward that's going to be a bit of an issue and 
hopefully I think there is there is definitely still more confidence you know we've got clients that are quite bullish now wanting to to crack on um but I think we're also going to see others particularly new bringing new projects forward where we're, we're going to have a bit more of an issue mm. are those those clients wanting to crack on is that is that since the the government was defeated in the lords uh yeah so we've had you know kind of couple of projects where people are you know they're happy to 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 continue because they're confident that at least in the short term there's going to be a requirement I suppose we're a bit more advanced with their projects and you know ultimately they've put more money into um and inter mainly in terms of their time and their own time and investment and thinking about doing this stuff on their land so they're quite keen to not see that kind of all go up in smoke as well if the government does put forward a new bill in the king's speech there will be a period of probably six to twelve months while that the whole process works its way through and in the in, in the meantime it's business as usual so if developers want to progress their planning applications they will need to have nutrient mitigation so if we can bring schemes forward in that time there'll be a market for those um but aside from those you know i think we are definitely seeing a bit more reticence from from new people coming forward and offering up um land into these types of schemes mm. So a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the the damage of the uncertainty is already done. And we were just talking before we we came in uh, to the to the eco chamber studio. Um, there was news this week that Ashford Borough Council has has paused one of its well paused its nutrient uh, mitigation scheme, uh, and this is a direct result of all the 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 I keep calling it upheaval, but it really the the result of the toing and the throwing uh, that we've seen on nutrient neutrality is that concerning for you in your sector or I suppose maybe it's a good thing because you think well then developers will have to come to the private yeah. sector I mean I, th- I think it's just yeah it's just it's a symptom of what happens when you have this level of uncertainty and you know Ashenborough Council put a lot of money into um, trying to bring that scheme forward um, and or bring a scheme forward um, and you know that money's now potentially going to kind of go to waste it's public money that would have been spent doing that so um that's obviously you know a bit of a, a big issue from when you start having lots of uncertainty um being brought in by government policy changes um and it's kind of you know just symptomatic of, of the wider um i think sentiment amongst certainly some stakeholders within within the sector hmm. i should say that um we asked the government if it can, could confirm the reports that the, the second nutrient neutrality bill had been abandoned. And a spokesperson said, as we said following the vote in September, these reforms would have unlocked 100,000 much needed homes while protecting and improving the environment. We are considering next steps so we can explore how we can lock, unlock the homes we need. Uh, so there you go. That's what that's neither yes nor no, I think, is, yeah. is fair to say. And we'll talk a bit more later about that 100,000 homes figure, because maybe that's not quite what uh, we think it is. Um, but first, let's talk about Labour's stance on nutrient neutrality, uh, because Labour blocked the government's first attempts to, to scrap the rules. Uh, but it's been very careful to say that it doesn't think the current system is perfect by any, any stretch of the imagination and it could do us some changes. Um, what do you think of Labour's position? Um, I agree with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's really important for us to, you know, for people working in the, the nutrient neutrality sector um, to acknowledge the fact that whilst we want the system to continue because we think it's delivering an important role in, in helping to make new development more sustainable, the system is by no means perfect um, and there could be significant improvements. And actually, one of the, I suppose, positives that came from the lobbying effort um, by 
sort of us and, and others from the nutrient neutrality sector and the NGOs um, who are kind of interested in this issue, environmental NGOs, um, was that a lot of ideas started kind of being pushed around and uh, about ways in which we could make the system better. Um, and we actually had the first meeting of a nutrient neutrality forum yesterday, um, which uh, ourselves and uh, another company called Wild Capital uh, are leading. And that's brought together um, most of the kind of key actors, I suppose, who are in the nutrient neutrality space at the moment, um, across a range of different professions, kind of lawyers, people actually who, you know, scheme owners, um, consultants. Uh, and um, they all kind of echoed broadly the same kind of issues around just time taken for getting schemes signed off by local planning authorities, by Natural England, um, a need to effectively streamline the system in a really significant way. And we, you know, we've been talking about this for um, quite a long time. We put out an action plan that basically spelt out ways in which these kind of things could be um, could be dealt with and would massively speed up mitigation provision. Um, and we've also um, talked about how potentially a sort of fundamentally different system to, to, nutrient, to the way that nutrient neutrality is administered would, would be really beneficial both to uh, the mitigation providers and developers. Um, so you know, we've talked about Greenshake in particular kind of pushing the idea of a levy-based system so developers would basically pay um, a, uh, a fee at the point where they receive planning permission um, and that discharges their requirements with respect to nutrient uh, neutrality. The money goes into a central pot and is distributed onto um, mitigation schemes and scheme providers basically bid into the, the central pot for at a kind of catchment level to deliver schemes. Um, this isn't a particularly new idea. We've spoken to um, DEFRA and DLUC about this and they said, oh, you know, we've kind of kicked this around at different points in time and other people have kicked this idea around at different points in time. Um, and I just don't know if you saw today the uh, Wildlife and Countryside Link released a... Um, yes, they've, yeah. put, they've put forward some proposals of their own. And I mean, that's basically, we've worked with them on that as well. Um, so we, you know, that's broadly aligned to this kind of wider idea of some form of strategic system with a sort of levy-based payment um, mechanism. And, you know, there's a lot of these ideas that came out from the um, the lobbying effort against the government amendment. Um we were sort of heartened that Labour said they'd want to speak to the sector and consult the sector um, about how these things could and should be done. Um, one of the things that's been completely missing from the government's response to this, and not just in respect of the LERB and sort of levelling up and regeneration bill um, and uh, the recent activity, but really kind of throughout the entire process with nutrient neutrality, like there's been a complete lack of consultation um with the sector and it sort of feels like actually we're almost just all consulting with each other in lieu of the government doing it um in a kind of more organized way and just trying to feed information back to the government saying that we've all talked to each other now and this is what we think is a is the way in which we can make the system work better does that um, include developers as well it's we, I mean, we do try and talk, yeah, we are talking to developers, you know, we have developer clients, uh, um, you know, we've got people who represent what's sort of involved in the, um, in the various people, sort of stakeholders that are involved in nutrient charity it includes uh, a lot of agents from big companies that have, that are predominantly uh, property based, so sort of Knight Franks, Savills, Bidwells, people like that. Um, and, you know, we have their voices coming in as well. A lot of the people are sort of more like their, their land agents who are working in natural capital now, and but they provide a really interesting perspective from the kind of development and, uh, you know, nature-based solutions, nature markets kind of side uh, point of view. Um, so, you know, we understand that 
now developers really want to you know that they don't like the fact they have to pay this because they don't like to have to pay additional costs for anything why would you your business it hurts your bottom line but they are kind of now bought into the fact that it's necessary quite a lot of them are bought into the fact that actually it is a problem that does need to be addressed um, and they have ways in which they can kind of price it in if it's sort of there early in terms of their you know planning for a new development site um, and really for them it's the time that's the problem and the time it's taking to resolve it um, and so if there was a way in which that could be streamlined and, and they had a way of effectively just discharging their requirement without having to have you know a mitigation solution all parceled up and done like in advance it would you know really enable them to to, to progress and, and they probably wouldn't have any as many issues with nutrient neutrality um, and so you know that's what we've been talking about how can we basically create a system where actually developers aren't being held up but they do still have to pay to deal with the problem mm. um yeah so because basically the ideas you're saying is um allow developers to get the planning permission early if they put the money up up front and then actually getting the mitigation can come a bit further down the line but i assume before anyone's actually started living in these properties because i suppose that's that's the key thing right it's an interesting bone of contention i think between sort of us and uh some of the NGOs where we think that that should be 100% the aspiration, but we're aware in terms of the practicalities, at least in the short term of bringing mitigation schemes forward, that there are going to be certain situations, mainly due to environmental factors, that make it slightly difficult um, to perhaps have a scheme there and ready, particularly for you know more of the developments that are currently at a more advanced stage in planning where they've got a shorter window between you know, receiving planning permission, houses being built and occupied. Um, and in those situations, there could, and I, we would argue should be a, an ability for a dispensation that says, you know, there can be a very small amount of impact if there's betterment afterwards. So in that situation, they'd have to basically do more to, you know, have to be more than just mitigation, but actually betterment. Um, the NGOs, we're aware, you know, we've had conversation about this. They they obviously stick very much the line of, you know, there can be absolutely no, nothing that causes any form of deterioration. And I, and I respect that opinion. Um, but we're just coming at it, you know, from the kind of practical perspective of, of understanding a lot about how this stuff has to be brought forward and the timings with different stages of development and going, well, OK, then there might be some situations where in order to meet the requirements of all stakeholders, there has to be a bit of flex here. Mm. Um, OK. And what, because you said just before that... Um, you, like you, you you know put this idea to DLUC, that's the Department of Leveling mm. Up and um, Housing, uh, and to DEFRA, and it's it's been kind of kicked around but never gone anywhere. What what do they say when when this is put to them? Why so, doesn't it go, t- go anywhere? So I think it's in part because of that issue of like needing to have mitigation kind of there up front and partly how um sort of dealing with with that side of of, of the problem, the. Ultimately, like there's, in order to to do that, you would still need to probably have a change to the habitat regulations, um, mm. some kind of loosening of them, um, but in quite a defined way with a mechanism that can actually improve the situation in the long term, um, right. which is what we'd like to see anyway. Um, and I think 
I mean, ultimately, there, there is already kind of like a principle within the habitat regulations that allows this. It's called IROPI um, and, and derogations process, which no one likes at all. But um, but it's sort of it is there and there mm. is a principle that could be kind of used to say it's not completely departing mm. from the grain of the habitat regulations, which yeah. obviously the, the levelling up bill amendment was, because that was just saying just ignore the impact that we know is happening. And IROPI is when there's reasons of overriding. Um, what's it stand for again? Uh, it's imperative reasons of overriding public interest. There it is, yes. Um, which, yeah, effectively saying like, this thing is so important that it can kind of happen anyway, even though there might be some, uh, some impact, but you need to have some form of compensation, uh, environmental compensation put in place. And most of the time that environmental compensation is supposed to be there, you know, it, it's supposed to be active prior to the impact taking effect. Um, our view is that ultimately while um, the nutrient impact from lots of development is significant, if there are the odd housing development that for reasons of, you know, they're not being, you know, just the timing not being quite right to enable mitigation to be in place beforehand, mm. you know, a hundred houses is not going to be the thing that suddenly tips these systems over into ecological collapse. Um, you know that that's actually, relatively speaking, those hundred houses are not like a really big problem. They're a bit of the problem. They're a bit of a really big problem. And so having that relaxation around, you know, that's kind of smaller end of the um, around specific situations where that might need to happen would just massively help us actually keep the system and and and, and remove some of the objections to it that come from the development sector. Um, Mm. And I think circling back to kind of where this started with, you know, Labour's um, position on it, obviously they've talked about wanting to consult the sector. And, and so I think certainly all the people on the mitigation provision side of things would probably back that kind of idea that there is an ability, you know, we should have an ability to slightly relax that. And people will say, well, of course you would, because it makes your kind of lives easier in terms of delivering mitigation projects. But like, you know, my background is in environmental science. Like I do understand the scale of the impact that would arise from making these kind of changes and as long as there are some controls in place it is you know that isn't going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back because the camel's back is already broken it's about mm. you know actually just not allowing the camel's back to be too much more broken and, and it's and that isn't those tiny those little bits more coming in when you're going to improve the system overall through another mechanism is is actually kind of aligned with fixing the camel's back rather than further breaking the camel's back to labour a camel's back this analogy. Poor, this poor camel. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, that, that, that's interesting because I think that's, it's that thing, is it, that, that with, the, with the green groups and the NGOs, the thing for them is just absolutely no more deterioration can happen because we are in a state of ecological crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how, but, but the other side is pretty much every, every other part of, of industry um, saying, well, we've got need new homes and that is that's the conflict here um but just to kind of take a step back i suppose from the, the nitty-gritty on nutrient neutrality what i mean what i have found interesting in covering this myself is um you hear lots of things said lots of numbers put out um and we've seen the the home builders federation claiming that more than 145,000 homes have been held up due to these these rules um even the work that you know ENS has done has shown that those figures don't quite stand up to scrutiny, um, and it makes and it, I think you've in discussions we've had previously said that it's quite possible that number is quite a lot lower. Uh, the government itself says it's you know if we got rid of nutrient neutrality, they would hope to see about a hundred thousand uh, homes coming forward. Um, but 
nutrient neutrality is one thing that impacts the planning process, right, for, for new builds. There's all sorts of things that affect it. Why is nutrient neutrality the target here when there's all these, there's so many factors in why things get held up? I mean, I think it's a convenient political football that has the capacity for a nice soundbite if um, the government were to be able to get rid of it. I mean, you know, first off, it comes from um, EU law. And so I think there's... Habitats regulations. Yeah, Yeah. from the habitats regulations, which of course are... um, and, And, you know, mutual neutrality itself is a consequence of a European Court of Justice ruling um, that still has effect in um, in UK law because it happened prior to 2020 when Brexit, you know, when we officially Brexited. Um, and so I think there's that as like an overriding, you know, big political tick for it um, is one, one element. And then you kind of combine that with it will free up um, some economic development in uh, certain parts of the country, um, you've kind of got this ability to be like, got rid of EU law and enabled an economic development in the process. Um, so, yeah, I think because of that, it's... And I think maybe they sort of saw it as something where if they can make that change to the habitat regulations, it sets a precedent for what they could potentially do in the future. Um, and then kind of it's quite like a, a neat thing if they could have done it quite easily like if the, if the amendment to leveling up that actually worked and well for them it worked um then it just would have been a kind of nice tick like okay great got a soundbite like kicked out old eu law i think you know what they're saying 18 billion worth of um investment unlocked and some num- thousands of jobs or something um and obviously you know new homes as well are um a, a big kind of area of um, probably one going to be, you know, a big political battle in the next election. So it sort of factors into that, um, that sort of political argument as well. Um, so I think it had a lot of nice sort of plus points from a just very easy soundbite perspective. But obviously, I don't think they quite bargained for the level of um, pushback that mm-hmm. they might have got for it. Um, Perhaps not, although the government's, you know, made multiple it's done a review of the habitats regulations the few itself uh it's it's kind of talked about various various times wanting to change them um nutrient change is just one part one bit that sort of relates to the habitats regulations i think some green groups that i speak to uh i think one of the reasons they're so concerned about the nutrient neutrality attack is that does it just open the door to to all the other things that the habitats regulations um kind of has relating to it like water neutrality which has also held up some development in kind of smaller areas of the country uh air neutrality is even smaller issue i think but it you know it gets talked about Mm -hmm. um do you do you buy that or do you think this idea that the habitats regulations um must be protected at all costs isn't isn't the right way i mean you've sort of said you, you think it could be loosened a bit um it's a tricky one i think there are situations, I suppose. I mean, yeah, because I, I can't I can't sit here and be like, I know we must protect every single you know, sanctity of the habitat regulations at all costs, having just said that actually there's a scenario in the neutrality situation uh, where there could be a small loosening without it really having, like, you know, a massive deleterious impact on um, on the environment. And uh, 
Um, I suppose there's so much nuance with each individual issue. Um, I can see the kind of what argument that like if you allow one thing to happen, would it sort of open the floodgates for lots of other sort of steady erosion? I suppose um, potentially yes. I mean, you, you, it's hard to say. You know, it's kind of quite this crystal ball gazing, and um, I suppose like. I would have thought it would slightly depend on on the nature of what was then proposed with respect to other kind of issues that um, that the habitat regulations have an influence on with respect to environmental protection. I, mean, I thought, you know, looking at the nutrient neutrality issue and the way that they did it, it was such a sort of egregious attempt to um, to carve out nutrient neutrality from the Habs regs by literally saying in law, if there is evidence of an impact, ignore it. You'd sort of hope that if that kind of thing was done again, like it, in a different context, it just wouldn't, um, you know, it wouldn't. They'd have the same. Yeah, they'd have backlash. the same kind of backlash against it. Um, so, but I suppose if there were things where, you know, I'll go back to my own example, but where there was a bit more evident, uh, like, you know, evidenced reasoning as to why perhaps there could be some of these small departures, because in these particular circumstances, you know, there is an ability to, you know, uh, some a tiny impact might not be actually as bad as as kind of all there. There could be a reason, a wider reason to allow that small impact, um, and and uh, you you know you aim to also have an overall improvement um, as a consequence of allowing that impact to happen. Then I think you know it's about it's probably kind of a bit case by case. So being completely wedded to them and saying well you can't change them at any cost seems perhaps a bit too absolute to me but um but then also yeah complete hatchet jobs like the government was proposing are also obviously like far too far in the opposite direction yeah things get so black and white sometimes yeah. in environmental debates it's it's um it's good to it's good to talk talk out all the issues um neutral neutrality is one of the the main natural capital markets uh, in England, and natural, natural capital is this idea that the government's talked a lot about wanting to be the thing that drives a lot of change for, for good, for for, um, for for nature's recovery. Um, but I guess stepping even further back from from the issues we've been talking about, some people say that the idea of allowing the private markets and companies, I guess, such as yourself, uh, to to kind of lead this and uh, relying on on private business and, and basically the commodification of nature as an asset that you can sell or trade, that sort of thing, is never going to actually recover nature. Uh, I can guess that you don't agree because you work for, a, you've set up a natural capital uh, company, but what's, what's, why, what's your view on, on this whole debate? I would love for us all to just go, you know, have a borderline blank check to go and sort out the problems that we've got with managing the environment, paid for by government, I don't know, voluntary contributions from the private sector, whatever, like just a load of money there that isn't linked to having to kind of do this commodification of nature. But that isn't the world we live in. Um, and we can want that as much as we want it. But it's kind of quite well, we've seen that it's not happened. Um, so I think... I've always viewed sort of the nature markets, natural capital idea, monetization of ecosystem services as just a pragmatic approach to rooting money into delivering 
environmental good. Um, and, you know, I was reading something yesterday, I think sort of, sort of voluntary principles for nature markets that were released by uh, Wildlife Trust, but had a bunch of NGOs that put their name to it. And I think they said that there was like a £6 billion uh, pound per year shortfall in funding for sort of nature recovery work if you sort of take into account all the money from public and philanthropic um you know contributions to to fund these kinds of projects and like that money's going to have to come from somewhere um I, you know the government is not exactly replete with unspent budget that it can you know just free up to or, or decide to spend on on these kind of projects i mean maybe you could make um some argument for investing in it but then you're kind of just going down the same route of valuing nature to say well you know, okay, we're going to take money from some other budget pot and put it into this, you know, nature recovery stuff because it's going to have some wider benefit for society as a whole, which will ultimately end up probably having some kind of impact on, uh, you know, on the economy or on on people and, and, and their ability to participate in the economy. And so, yeah, it, it's really, I think there's, you know, there's got to be a way of, getting money into these kinds of projects and so when I was working as a consultant sort of alongside sort of mainly prior to when I got into doing sort of almost exclusively nutrient neutrality work did other projects that was that were mainly servicing water companies um, and those projects were pretty much all based around like regulatory compliance um, so environment agency tells water companies that they have to do something um, in order to comply with, you know, whatever regulatory driver it might be. Um, and water companies pay some consultants, generally speaking, to go and sort of do some stuff and tell them, well, okay, these are recommendations of how you adhere to these regulations, while also hopefully achieving some kind of environmental improvement in the process. Um, those projects quite often ended up with just a report that you were never really sure how it got acted on and what it actually ended up doing. Um, and I think part of the problem was that there was never really any, it was very difficult to link between that regulatory compliance and a financial benefit to the water company. And if you have any company who is having an impact on the environment or that kind of utilises the environment in some way uh, in order to, you know, do the work it does and ultimately generate revenue, um, then maybe, you know, with respect to water companies, they could improve environmental management and that might help them reduce their costs, their operational costs, for example. But it's very difficult to show that. And actually the only way we'd get more investment beyond just them having to comply with regulations is if you can really show, okay, we did this thing here and it, you know, say reduce your water treatment costs by like a million pounds. And then that's actually like, you know, a way of valuing that service and then they'll put more money into doing that. Mm. So show the maths. Yeah. Like it's kind of, like, I wish we didn't live in a world where, like, that kind of cold, hard economic calculation was basically how most people make decisions, but we do live in that world. And so nature markets, natural capital is a way of kind of sh making, you know, making an argument for putting money into delivering these projects. And there has to be controls on it, and there should be ways in which, you know, making sure that, you know, we don't just do things that don't work or um, that are kind of basically paying people not to pollute when they should be not polluting anyway and stuff like that but you know it doesn't mean that it can't function as a system and, and I think it's necessary given where we are with respect to the ability for sort of public and philanthropic contributions to, to fund nature recovery. 
Gabriel, it's been great having you in the studio. Thank you for coming in. Thanks very much for having me, Tess. It's been great to have this conversation. And that's it. My thanks to Pippa Neal, Shosha AD, Tess Colley and Dr. Gabriel Connor-Strike for coming on to this week's episode of The Eco Chamber. I would really love to hear from you listeners with your thoughts, views and opinions on this week's episode. You can reach us by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on socials using the hashtag ecochamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care. 